Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 45. Today I bring you a surprise episode. It was even a surprise to me. If you're a patron of the podcast or follow my stories on Instagram, you'll know that I was recently in Brazil with a new coffee producer, Faf Coffee. It was a bit of a last-minute trip. Felipe and I have been trying to work together for about four years now, and we just kept missing each other. He then reached out in May, and I had a last-minute opening and then just bought tickets to leave June 6th. This was my third trip to Brazil, but previously I was flying from Cleveland, Ohio, which is basically Canada, so the trip to Brazil felt really long. I was open to a last-minute trip to Brazil because I now live in Colombia. We are neighbors. We share a border. And yet, because of where I live, a remote mountain location, we are far from an airport. And it's a small airport, so there are few choices in flights. It honestly took me longer to get from my house in Colombia to Brazil than when I lived in Ohio and had to cross several other countries before getting to Brazil. Moral of the story, Brazil is deceptively huge and Lucia is bad at geography. I had to take a red-eye flight, so I arrived exhausted, jet-lagged, and we went straight to work. Even though I was in Brazil to work with Felipe, his family's farm is a magnet for activity. There were multiple other visits happening at the same time, including a professional photographer, a roaster visiting from Sweden, myself, and several family friends and other FAF employees. And then the surprise guest was Einstein. Longtime listeners of the podcast will recognize his voice from our Q&A episode. Einstein is a Norwegian immigrant and coffee consultant based in Minas Gerais, Brazil. During his first years in coffee, he worked in Norway as a barista, coffee shop manager, and roaster from 1998 to 2014, after which he moved to Brazil to work directly with coffee farmers. Today, he focuses on roasting and post-harvest processing. He also offers courses in roasting, sensory, and extraction. Einstein is a consultant like me, and in this conversation, you'll hear us talk about our different approaches to consulting and working with producers. We got to spend a week together, and he was fermenting with me, cupping, and he also got to see a presentation I gave a group of Brazilian producers who work with FAF. On the last day, we were able to sit together and record this episode. I didn't think about recording an episode, so I had none of my own equipment with me, but he did. He set up the microphone and his computer, and we sat in the middle of the farm to have this conversation. So you'll have to excuse the barking dogs and truck engines you can sometimes hear. Nick did his best, but we had less than ideal recording conditions. I'm really glad to bring you this conversation because Einstein adds something very important that's been missing from this podcast. I think this is the very first episode ever where we talk about roasting and brewing, both very important parts of making coffee, but not areas of my expertise. I think you'll enjoy rounding out your coffee education as we listen to him talk about Quakers, how different density seeds take on heat differently, how to maximize extraction for tastier cups of coffee, how to prepare our bodies to be more sensitive to detecting flavor, and much more. All right, let's get started. So, we're live. Awesome. So, you surprised me. First of all, you surprised me by being here. (laughs) In the first place, I was like, I'll tell everybody. I arrived, I had a red-eye flight to get here, and it's a a journey to get from the mountain down to the airport anyway. So, I'd been traveling for like 18, 19 hours. Mm -hmm. Then I got here. Got to the airport and then it was another like five hour drive. It's four hours and then we stopped for some 
like bathroom breaks and food and then we got here and then it was like lunchtime and so it was like all of these things and then we get into lunch at the main room and it was like 12 people uh-huh. that I'm just like meeting for the first time speaking Portuguese a mix of English all of these things and I'm hidden down at the end of the table and you were hidden people. at the <laughs> end of the table behind people I couldn't see your face I thought you were with Peter I thought you guys uh-huh. because of the two Nordic people I thought you were to, and they kept talking about his father mm-hmm. so for some reason for a moment I'm like are you his father <laughs> <laughs> could be but, but no <laughs> at least and, I have the age and I can't remember the moment where I was like wait I know him. <laughs> He's my internet friend. I've heard that voice before. Yes. So can you please introduce yourself? So my name is Einstein and I work here in Brazil, uh, mostly with roasting consultancies and post-harvesting consultancies and trying to do this on the premises that ro- that producers can work with, especially with post-harvesting. So, you know, different from you, uh, we don't use all the cool tools. We try to use, you know, smell and touch and vision and all these other tools that we have to try to uh, streamline processes without having to make great investments before things start working and after things work of course you're you're more free and it's safer to make investments Mm -hmm. but i think your way is probably easier more controlled well i think it's interesting so you made a comment while we've been together so we've now we've gotten to spend almost the whole week Mm -hmm. um processing having conversations just like having meals together, which I love. Um, and you did surprise me by saying that you feel like our approaches are, are different. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I hear you talk, I felt like we were very similar in our approach to how we treat coffee. And so I bring the tools mostly to show people that we don't need the tools. <laughs> so I like to use them. And then by the end of like our time together, we stop using them because I really like to reinforce using our eyes, using mm-hmm. our fingers. I think you know, using your senses is something very universal. And as human beings, I mean, I think of us as like a chemical laboratory. We're, we're perfectly suited to evaluate what we smell and what we taste. The, the big question is how we organize all this and how we uh, get information out of it that we can trust and use safely without having too much risk involved. That's the difficult part. Right. And I think another thing that you mentioned is we have this ability to like train ourselves to become more sensitive. And I've heard you make some comments as to kind of training your body so that you can perceive these things and also trusting those things. So what have you done to train yourself? Well, um, like for example, if you, you can look at like a common, let's call it a defect in coffee, like astringency. So you can have astringency coming in from processing or you can have it coming in from the type of harvesting you do, just too much unripes, for example. Uh, it can come in from roasting, which is very common. And it's very common to have much more astringency in our brews than we need as well, just for from not doing what I call, um, what do I call it? Um, so when you make an extraction, you, you tend to, you know, I would like 19% extraction or 20% extraction for this coffee to make it taste the way I want to, but I feel that we need to adjust the extraction during the whole process. Let's say it takes three minutes, three and a half minutes to, to do like a V60. Um, you can extract much more in the beginning and much less at the end, for example. And that will reduce a lot of the astringency that you get because the coffee gives pretty much everything it has of good stuff, you know, acidity and the, the, the sweetness, all these things come in quite early in the brew. And if you don't control your, your water flux and how much you extract at each point in the recipe, you end up with just way too much astringency and it's not necessary. So, you know, my, my approach has always been to identify where these things come in, what's the origin of the problem. 
and <clears throat> you can you can do that by for example is this closer to something that I would find for example in grape seeds or grape skins which means it could be from picking or is it something that is obviously from the roasting which has a slightly different marker but it's very similar in how it acts but the, the flavors the way it works in your mouth and how your brain processes it is slightly different between for example brewing and the same problem coming in from post-harvesting or, or roasting. I totally get that, that, that you have kind of the same marker with different sources. So mm -hmm. the stringency from different sources, whether it could be the fruit or the processing, or it could be the roasting. But like, how do you, in your body, how are you able to detect it? Is it in a different part of your mouth? Or is it just like a feeling where you know it's one for the other? A lot has to do with complexity. And the first thing I always read uh, when it comes to looking at the quality and how the coffee has evolved, how you did the post-harvesting, for example, is to look at acidity. Because mm -hmm. the human body is quite consistent in how it um, evaluates acidity. So, for example, if you have a coffee that has too much unripe, these coffees will give you a bit more astringency from, from being underdeveloped on the bush or on the tree. Um, and they will also not roast as well. They don't have the same kind of heat transfer as like a perfect picking point for roasting. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know what that is yet and it moves a lot. And I think we need a lot more uniformity in our processing and picking to actually see these things, get good data points for these things. But for example, if you have a coffee that's, that you can clean out, you can, you can pick a sample clean and you have like a 14, 15 screen with more defects and you have a 16 screen and above with less defects, um, you can see how this changes the acidity, for example. So when you have more unripes, you will get more astringency, but you will also get an acidity that's less complex and that reminds you more of unripe fruit, for example. So when you have unripe fruit, you will not salivate as much. So this salivation is like my first criteria that I judge to see if the picking was okay, if the processing was okay, and if the roasting was okay uh, through this. And that's probably like my, my main point for, for evaluation of the coffee, because this is, has to do with how the, how the coffee treats the human body and how our, you know, making our acceptance factor go up, trying to find these universal truths that all people react positively to this in some way, even though there are differences between different cultures and different regions, because we have different foods in different regions and we have different preferences and you also have you know where you are on your journey to to understand flavor and aroma because in the beginning we tend to accept um, slightly simpler coffees that have like one note that speaks really highly and as we evolve we tend to go for more complexity and and value uh, the cleanliness of the coffee if it's really uniform and well etc etc so so I'm curious, uh, the other thing I want to mention is that you are about to celebrate 25 years in coffee. Yes. <laughs> it's still a tiny bit in the future. Uh, if I don't remember wrong, it's in like February or something. But you have a lot of this experience that you've built up. So is this something, this skill of being able to kind of play detective with your coffee, is that something that you can teach to your clients? Yes. I'm actually finding that transferring these, what I call like universal concepts on flavor and aroma and, and try to organize where things come in and how they happen. Uh, this kind of knowledge has been quite easy to transfer. So last year, for example, I did a did a 13-day course with um, with a co-op. Uh, up north in Brazil, well, not that far north, but much further north than we are now in Bahia. And uh, what we did during that course was we were looking at harvesting and post-harvesting and how the co-op lab 
could do continuous feedback to the farmers during the harvest so you can learn maybe more in one year and one harvest than you can learn from like three consecutive harvests so you speed up the learning process for all involved and I think so you're that, like closing the loop you're closing the loop with a small group of people so they, they can become like autonomous and you have this auto correction uh, in your work and in this like a focus group that focuses on this so you can you know you can have a cupping every Friday like a group of 20 producers comes into the co-op because there's they're the focus group it's like this coffee kind of got a bit hot fermenting so we need more control here this coffee didn't dry that uniformly so we need to work on that you need to move it more in the end phases for example uh, this one is lacking a bit in body and we have some techniques we can apply to make the body become much better for example mm -hmm. which is quite simple and you know these things really help align and when you help people fit or close the circle at origin at the producer's place that really benefits everything it benefits the market benefits the producer and we see much better coffees coming out for sure and this actually leads me to one of the topics that i i find really fascinating which is this idea of like reverse engineering a process based on the flavor so mm -hmm. like the processing leaves clues and so i've had this experience for sure where i can taste a coffee and kind of know what happened to it and can you share some stories about kind of uh, surprising producers by being able to taste their coffee and telling them what what they did. Well, I, I have a lot of those. Um, but it's kind of funny with cupping. Um, the more you cup and the more specialized you get. Like for example, we just did a cupping table like an hour ago, and I wasn't very vocal at that table because I don't really have that much to say. And why do I don't I have that much to say? Because I don't have control over the parameters. I don't know how the coffees were roasted, so I can kind of try to reverse engineer by flavor. But since I didn't roast the coffee, since I don't have uh, that data available to me, then there's a much bigger level of uncertainty in what I say. So I feel that I need to be very, very careful to not give the wrong picture mm -hmm. and not give wrong information because giving wrong information just kills coffee mm -hmm. and makes people's lives more difficult. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to simplify and adjust and and make things run better and introduce new concepts where we can start making you know next generation coffee where coffee is tailored for universal acceptance and then you have the flavor profile on top of that to make it great but you know you don't fight with your mouth with with astringency or or simple acids that remember green fruit more than mature fruit etc etc so you try to build a good clean foundation and then the sensory profile becomes something you put on top of this to give it identity. Mm -hmm. So a story when you, with a producer, where you surprise them by knowing what they did. Yeah, so during the pandemic, you know, my work has been extremely limited because it's very hands-on. So yes, during the pandemic, I did a lot of uh, cupping to do post-harvest analysis and do, you know, alignment of processes. Uh, and what I would do is I, you know, I would say, you know, send me 350 grams of your coffee or your coffees, um, but don't tell me anything about them. I want to do separation by screen size, I want to do all my green grading, I want to do all my roasting and figure out how each coffee needs to be roasted to get to the level that I need to see what I need to see. And then I generally tell, the return will be about, you know, how did, what's the result of your harvesting and how can I see that this is influencing your coffee and how could you do better in this way? For example, if you want to make a coffee that's less herbaceous, you need more mature fruit. And maybe you need a really, really clean sample to ferment to get rid of that herbaceous flavor, for example. Mm -hmm. Which is perfectly acceptable for espresso in, in big parts of the world. 
but for drip coffee, uh, not that accessible. Um, and then doing return on fermentation, which is what most people are working today. And most people here in Brazil do dry fermentations. And they're difficult to control. They're difficult to get really good success with dry fermentations because they're very ununiform in how they work. Mm -hmm. That's one of the big problems and why you like working with pulped coffee. Mm -hmm. Pulped coffee and submerged pulped coffee. Mm -hmm. Submerged, that's a big one. So we do some submerged cherry fermentations as well. But most of the good ones uh, turn out to be... Um, actually, I haven't seen that many people have good control with wet fermentations, but it might be because they're not working correctly. I mean, mm -hmm. if, you, if you have too high temperatures during the night and you have no idea, uh, you know, that's, that's going to give you a big prejudice. Mm -hmm. But I also know producers who actually have uh, remote monitoring in their tanks, wherever they are, as, as long as they have connectivity on their phone, they can check their tanks and yeah, see how they're doing. It's like, ooh, tank number three needs mixing because it's mm -hmm. getting hot. Please see to that. So that helps a lot. But we don't see a lot of farmers working that way. So it's just a matter of cleaning up inside what they can do economically and practically. And then when they see good success and they start making money, then we can start implementing changes that makes things easier and faster and which introduces less risk. Because mm -hmm. the risk in coffee is huge. And I think we need to get out of this situation where we've been for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years when we started working on getting better coffees, but it's still super dependent on luck. And that's not a good business model. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think it's interesting too when, I mean, I, this is my third time to Brazil, but I still know very little about Brazilian coffee culture. Like it's mm -hmm. very different. I think like the scale I just know that it's very different from Central America and the wash coffees that I work with, um, but I still don't really know how. So can you tell us a little bit more about these Brazilian producers or what you've seen about this market in particular? So um, there's some, there are some common denominators uh, where people tend to make good coffees. Uh, so what I've seen over the years where I've been in Brazil now, coming up to eight years, is that uh, when I came in 2014, we had a lot of really interesting but slightly dirty coffees because people were not doing like, you know, they were not cleaning the coffees or giving them a slight bath and not taking out like foliage and twigs mm -hmm. like most people do for natural fermentations now. If they're going to ferment the cherry, they usually give the coffee a quick wash and then they go to the raised beds. On the raised beds, people pick out all the greens and all the almost ripes. And then on day two or three, we also start picking out again and doing another sorting based on the browning reactions in the fruit. So you separate out, of course, you always separate what you have the least of because you want to work less. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have like a third of your raised bed starting to brown, then you pick up those because that's going to be the best coffee and the smallest uh, slice in the whole you know, matur maturation scheme. So that really helps a lot, but it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And for me, doing naturals, naturals for me, they almost always turn out best. They're richer, they're fuller. But for them to turn out really clean and really with a really clear and well-defined personality, it takes a lot of work and your your level of uniformity it has to be really up there for them to start reacting properly. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a paradox where dry process natural coffees are seen as less work because mm -hmm. you don't need as much you don't need as much equipment to get started and you can kind of just go from picking to patio. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they all, like you're saying, they have a, a smaller tolerance of 
having really good results because you have a lot of variables and it may seem like less work, but you could spend much more time mm -hmm. sorting, selection, cleaning them up. And also the places that tend to make the best coffees in this style because you need this, you know, you need a really, really clean sample to be able to have some kind of control during the fermentation. Uh, they are generally farms that pick over their trees many, many times. I mean, I know farms that go back to the same lot 15 times during the harvest and the harvest stretched out for like four to five months. Okay, so that's opposite of what I thought of Brazil, where it was more like a one and done, like a lot of uniformity. All the big producers do one and done, plus they do a, a sweeping afterwards right. for the coffee that, you know, from rains or from picking fell on the ground, it didn't go where it should go, just to avoid problems with insects for next year and control the population of Broca, for example. Um, but, you know, this is really essential for making good natural coffees, that you have a homogenous sample that you can work and that's really expensive and really unpractical. So what a lot of the research over the last three, four years with like um, yeasts coming out from universities, for example, there's a lot of there's a lot of trials and a lot of experiments going on. And what they're aiming for is to be able to just do one harvest and let the let the fermentation kind of even out, even out things and, and give you the potential. Um, but that's not that easy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not seeing the results that I want to see. But you might, you know, you might see a 83 coffee go up to 84, but that's not very expressive. Right. You know, it's not very, you're not gaining a lot from that. And um, also, I can't get rid of that. It's not a funkiness, uh, because you don't necessarily get funkiness with the, with the fermentation until it goes too far. Um, but you can still have that nutty foundation from underripe coffee mm -hmm. or coffee that did ferment but didn't have enough sugars or didn't have the proper structure the proper content to ferment ferment the way you need it to mm -hmm. so like you know for example a fermented quaker that has enough sugar to go somewhere but doesn't go where you need it to be can become a big problem in a coffee have you tasted many of these uh like yeast fermented yeast treated like where we're actually inoculating with yeast yes. coffees yes do you feel like you can taste the yeast uh sometimes when the fermentation is still a bit too light or it went maybe too slow you get this kind of pulpy, undefined fruit flavor, uh, which is one of the things I don't like that much. I mean, when it kind of, you know, eating coffee berries is for me the best way to appreciate coffee. There's nothing like it. And my dream is making brewed drip coffee kind of come as close as possible to the experience of, of eating the fruits. That seems like an interesting uh, thing to chase after for the mm -hmm. rest of my life. And, you know, through good processing <coughs> and really, really uh, careful roasting, and then really good extraction, where you focus much of the extraction at the beginning and as little as possible at the end, leaving the coffee bed as structured as possible so that the actual coffee is your first filter and the paper filter is just your cleanup filter. Yeah, let's talk really, about that. That really helps. A little bit more like these principles that we've found because I don't work um, very much at all with roasting. Kind of, uh, For me, it's like my green, mm -hmm. my cherries, and then to green and then I, I, I pass it on. So it's a big blind spot in my, in my work. But we found that we have the same philosophy towards uh, towards heat or how we treat the coffee. So for mm -hmm. me, in drying, I recommend putting all of your heat in the beginning, like putting your coffee in the sun, get it where it has the most water content, where it has the most like buffer, more capacity to mm -hmm. withstand this abuse, and then backing it off. Um, whereas what I see a lot of producers do is kind of get impatient, and they actually apply a lot more of the heat at the end because they just want to finish their coffee. They mm -hmm. just want to get ah, it dry. You're talking drying on. now instead of drying. fermenting, yeah. And drying. And so... Um, so yeah, so what I try to, 
uh, explain or express in my philosophy is front loading that mm-hmm. kind of heating abuse and then backing off. And then you mentioned the same thing with extraction. When yeah, we were and I do that with coffee. roasting and I do that with extraction. So why do I do this in roasting? Um, if a coffee is really dense, it will react better if you push it a bit harder in the beginning because it, you know, it's really well adapted to absorbing a lot of heat. And while it's still protected by the water in the seed, you can really push it. And the better the structure, like the cellular structure of the, of the coffee bean, um, the more able it is to receive this heat. So in coffee roasting, we're kind of missing a parameter today, which is like um, the rate of acceptance of heat. Let's just give it a stupid name. Um, and that really makes a huge difference from coffee to coffee. And some coffees just do not roast well because they have like several different uh, types of coffee or reactions in the same lot. And you have some coffee going fast, some coffee going slower, and some coffee going really slow, accepting the heat. That's why we, for example, see Quakers. Quakers are coffees that do not accept the heat that well, and they just don't evolve in the roasting. And much of the problem that they deliver into the into the coffee, into the final drink, is just because they're under-roasted, and they just don't go anywhere. They don't res- show you any real sugars. Of course, we can't taste sugars, but we have other molecules that... Uh, tell us that it's sweet so we let our brain do the work for us the tongue is not picking it up so if you have like a really hard seed really dense seed it needs a lot of energy to to get going if you have a damaged seed with poor structure that didn't develop well on the on the tree or you did a fermentation that was really really uh, fast and heavy handed Mm -hmm. so maybe you damage the structure or you dry it really really fast we have to remember that, you know, mechanical dryers today, you can still adjust them up to 200 degrees if you want to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you shouldn't go above like 40 in the mass. You can fight about where the where the temperature is, the maximum temperature. But I mean, we have to remember that the embryo doesn't tolerate above 42, just like us. So mm-hmm. I always say to the producers, if you're not happy in the sun, how can your coffee be happy? Mm-hmm. So, you know, think about the coffee and try to treat it like a like an entity, like something alive. Because if the coffee's not alive at the moment you roast it, you're not going to get much. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have like a really open seed, like um, the water activity is, is very different, for example, you have damage from, from drying or damage from fermentation, it also makes sense to roast it faster because one of the really important things at the end of the roast, uh, if you don't have enough water in the coffee, you're going to make a lot, you're going to have much less complexity of flavor. The coffee, the, the water really helps rounding out the body and giving identity to the roast. And if you have a bean that's really, really has a really loose structure and loses um, water fast, it dries out fast. So you know you can always always get into tipping, for example. It's like if you run it too hard, it's going to dry out on the most fragile end of the seed, and then that part of the seed will roast faster, will dry out, will pass the point, and will give you like you know even if it doesn't give you burnt notes, it will give you astringent notes. You're not going to see as much sugar, etc., etc. So, you know, I like the fast roasting because it works both for really hard seeds and seeds that are not as dense. You're going to have to explain that to me again. How, how does this work? When you have the less dense seeds, why would front-loading that heat? Because if you roast them faster, they have less time to lose water and you reach the end of the roast with enough water to maybe avoid a bad flick okay. and to have more... You, you generate more flavors, basically, if you have a tiny bit more water in the coffee, which, uh, is, which is another reason why I tend to enjoy personally coffees that are up at 12% humidity much more than 10%. 10% for me makes like a flat, almost dead coffee, but it's mm-hmm. really nice because it's super stable throughout a year and a 
wetter coffee will have much more flavor notes. It's much richer in, in its expression, but it might be more unstable. And if you don't have really good storage conditions, this coffee might get old and might tip faster. Right. I mean, that, that's the eternal struggle of you want to roast with slightly more moisture so that you can get that flavor expression. Mm -hmm. But then as a producer, you want to dry the coffee as much as you can so that you can ship it for six months on a container So if I have a coffee somewhere. that just gives me lots of flicking and that just does not make for good coffee, it never does mm -hmm. when, the, when the roar goes up at the end of the curve. Um, sometimes I just roast faster to push it harder and then I have less time for evaporation. Sometimes I can manage to pull something in by doing that and sometimes I just have to strong arm the roar by applying lots of air for example. Um, but roasters that don't have really good air control are really difficult to work for for these kinds of coffees, for controlling the roar and making sure you have this beautiful quarter circle, 90 degree dip at the end where you have lots of production in the first part of the crack and then you have as little degradation as possible at the end and you have to balance it out so you stop you don't go low enough in energy for it to become baked. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of your that's kind of your limit. And how you how you run through the first part of the crack, so you enter the crack with like a roar of 13 or a roar of 10. So you're gonna have you're gonna have different flavors coming out and different expressions coming out because of that, because you have some processes running faster, or you have them running a bit slower. And then you know if you run slower, then you'll have more emphasis on complexity. If you run faster and slightly hotter then the coffee will show more what it has in itself naturally. So you transform it less, making it show off processing and picking. Or if you have a coffee that's more different or more difficult, then you can focus more on transformation and cleaning it up that way, giving it expression through roasting. And can we talk about this principle in brewing then? How do you front load your extraction? Okay, so the last uh, year I've been working together with a wonderful woman called uh, Veronica Belchior. She is a doctorate student. Uh, doctorate student? No, she's a doctorate. Um, I was actually there when she presented her thesis a few years back and she's been studying uh, flavor and aroma and has come up with a lot of great stuff and she uses pure chemistry to explain how we should do V60 brews for example. Uh, so we put together a course and did a pilot on that a while back and what we're seeing is that we can actually design our recipe around what we want as a final result and apply principles. For example, uh, acidity is something that's highly soluble in coffee. It comes out really, really fast. So if you want to focus on acidity, uh, you should have as much extraction as possible at the beginning of your extraction. That makes sense. Um, but you can, you have to have so you can change your focus. For example, one thing I do, if I detail a recipe, I usually do a double blooming. Depends on the coffee, but I usually just work with fresh coffees because when they get up to like a couple of weeks, I don't find them that interesting anymore. And I can roast whenever I want, so mm -hmm. that makes things easier for me. But um, I can, for example, give the same amount of water as I have in coffee for the first pre-infusion. And I generally apply circular movements to, to, the, to the filter holder to uniformize as much as possible. So all the coffee has um, access to water mm -hmm. and have access to the same level of heat, which is really important to start a process in a uniform way. I usually do one pre-infusion and then I follow it with another one that's shorter with less water, just to up uh, the solubility I get out of the coffee in the beginning. And then I move into a second process where I use much less turbulence. Um, and at the end of the process is a third step where I try to keep the coffee bed as as untouched as possible 
uh, it's important that the, the brewing water that's on top of the coffee is like crystal clear there's like no mistiness to it and you have to judge the coffee bed so you know you can see nice clean coffee up top if you have this muddy kind of look to the to the extraction up top you know that something's gone wrong you've had way too much turbulence and maybe you've been too slow in giving the extraction water there's so many things we can look at for extraction to to get a north and you know how do i make this better and the coffee's telling you it okay. just helps to have done a lot of it and I think my point of view is kind of like an engineer's point of view, trying to reverse engineer all these things and try to find out how it works. You know, how can I move this to, into the direction that I want to? Mm -hmm. So for that, if, if I make a, like a 500 uh, milliliter brew, so I would use 35 grams of coffee. My EK will pass that around um, 13 on the scale of 0 to 16, since there are two different EKs. Uh, just a, it's a generational thing on the scale. So that's really, really coarse. That's much coarser than what much, most people use for brewing. That makes my coffee cleaner and sweeter and much more defined. But if I don't work the extraction and up the extraction through techniques, it becomes thin. It doesn't work that well. So that means I have good control and I can apply and modify, especially in the first 30 seconds. How I work in the first 30 seconds really define everything else. And mm -hmm. if, I, if I can make the end uh, be as calm and quiet as possible and it, like my water going into the filter does not disturb the coffee bed in any way sometimes i even pour on top of like a, a spoon just to avoid the fall avoid the energy of the water falling in to the to the coffee bed so, so just, it's not like a shower just, so, head so, like a dispersing uh-huh but you can just use a spoon if you put the spoon on the surface so the bottom of the spoon touches the surface and then surface tension brings the coffee slightly up and that kind of levels everything out so you can just pour on top of the spoon Mm -hmm. And then it'll just go out horizontally instead of going into the brew and, and, and mixing up your coffee bed. Because the coffee bed is a fantastic filter. I mean, I learned this from my years of making beer, where you use the, um, you use the grains to filter the beer at the end. So you can get on a nice clean mash mm -hmm. and, and continue. So that's where I learned how important it is to structure your coffee bed. And that has a lot to do with uh, how good your... Uh, roasting is because the coffee breaks up differently in your grinder with different roast levels and how you treat it and of course your grinder one of the things I'm, I'm realizing is I think about how I make coffee at home is maybe one way of kind of cheating and not having solved this problem of like an inconsistent bed is I brew much smaller so I don't do 30 I will do like 18 grams mm -hmm. and I much prefer to do you know two cups of 18 for me and Nick than to do like one big batch of 30 well if you look at the whole market now of course I don't haven't traveled all over the world I don't know that many people but what I'm seeing here in Brazil and also what I've seen in Europe from the traveling I've done there is that most people tend to work with a slightly finer grind than they should because it's easier mm -hmm. you don't have to focus quite as much on technique so you gain um, stability from brew to brew so your customers will recognize your style and your flavor and all these things and you have a simpler service is easier to make so as soon as you um, grind much coarser for example you need to apply lots more technique you have to work really really well if not your coffee is going to come out like you know flat and no presence mm -hmm. and no focus on anything um, and that is widely accepted just because people think that if it's always more or less the same that means it's good mm -hmm. it's like a strange strange thing that we might have picked up during the industrial revolution or who knows but it's 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 wrong it doesn't work it's like the least common denominator like when you have an old coffee, the only thing you can do is hit a certain uh, complexity level or a certain, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like a percentage of transfer from the coffee to the finished product. Uh, product. You know, you can focus on solubility. That's it. So if you have an old coffee that's getting woody and it doesn't have a defined acidity anymore, it's pushing more towards unripe fruit, for example. The only thing you have left is solubility and trying to make that coffee workable for people. I'm wondering if this is maybe a thing of, of semantics, um, but I, with like good, good versus quality. So like just because it's the same doesn't mean it's good. But for me, it's hard to define something as quality if it's not consistent. If something is all over the place and different every time, mm -hmm. I don't think that's quality. Like it's hard for me to apply that system. And maybe it is my industrial <laughs> But I, th I think that has to do with managing expectations more than, than using your body as a tool to appreciate this unique experience that you have in that cup. That's, you know, for me, coffee is about... Um, being alive, feeling something, tasting something, being part of the world. You know, every human experience is different. Everyone deserves to have lived to the maximum and have a full, rich life. That's how I look at things because I don't, I don't have a thing with religion. I don't like it too much. I think it's maybe done things, maybe it's more negative than positive. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to separate um, people who believe in something. That could be a really beautiful experience. But if you apply like religion, to me, that's more about control of populations. Mm -hmm. This is how, just my view. But um, I think as human beings, we have this potential of having this powerful, powerful experiences. It could be social, uh, you know, it could be love, but it could be food and it could be drink. We can make these, you know, thinking about falling in love and how powerful an emotion like that is, you can apply the same principles to drinking coffee. Mm -hmm. you know, I want this experience to really not just get my tongue and get my nose, but make my brain sing from yeah. what I'm putting into my mouth. Well, and that's going back to an earlier episode, what, what I had such a problem with with Cometeer that I didn't realize at the time, where I'm like, this is so technically interesting and the science, but it just felt so cold. I'm like, I don't feel the love from this coffee and for me having that love component is really important mm -hmm. and that like that experience really let me articulate it something I didn't realize that I thought I thought I just wanted good coffee and I'm like no I want to feel love so I'm starting to think about now you know maybe I'm taking all this from the wrong angle obviously you know it makes sense to work with the producer uh, or work with the roastery to make coffee better and maybe that can help fix up life's people's lives because you can make good coffee more consistently uh, with less risk which is all good mm -hmm. so it potentializes coffee people can potentially make more money they can turn their lives around they can invest better and smarter mm -hmm. and just make better coffee and partake more in what they do leave more of themselves in the coffee to be like the coffee is an expression of the producer mm -hmm. i mean what the producer does is a huge part of what we taste in the cup mm -hmm. is not just genetics or the the ambient around the coffee you know how the coffee is um, eating during the year if it has enough to drink how the temperature is treating it um, no but this all makes sense are you saying you're questioning that point of view of working with producers and yes because there might be another way to apply pressure to make this whole thing go faster mm. but it's going to make more noise Kind of like, I don't want to go to war with anyone. I just want to see change and positive change. Uh, but one way of going to war would be, like, say I 10 years from now, I get fed up trying to teach roasters how to roast and trying to teach producers how to make coffee. And I'll just, I'll just set up my place and do it my way. And I'll, you know, open up and take, you know, 20 visits every Saturday. Like there are some like crazy Japanese who have, are world famous and they only make one thing and they only serve it for like two hours during the afternoon 
on Thursdays mm -hmm. and you, people come in from all over the world yeah. just to have their noodle soup for example yeah so you know that could be a way of showing you know this is the way it should be the other way which is kind of like going to to war is um, showing people how the general principles work how do people you know what does it mean to be a human drinking coffee and what can you understand from the coffee by reading your own body you know how do you salivate uh, is your mouth drying up uh, how do you feel swallowing can you feel your stomach uh, be getting irritated not wanting to receive or is your whole body just generating uh, cool relaxed appreciative emotions um, so the body tells us so many things because it's basically made to evaluate fruit and and nuts and vegetables to see if they're good to eat or not mm -hmm. we can do this by smell and by by flavor and if you teach people how to read coffee in a different way so you know you are the lab what is important is how you receive the coffee so if i can teach people how if i can teach the, the, the end consumer what coffee should be like so they can start going after what coffee should be like that puts pressure on who produces and puts pressure on who roasts that's another way of making things move forward mm -hmm. um, but i think it might be a bit brutal for the market well, I, actually, there's two things that make me think of that. One was this idea of this cognitive dissonance between maybe intellectually or for reputation, you've been told this is a good coffee, you should like this coffee. Mm -hmm. And then when you have it, maybe your body has a different reaction of astringency or dryness. And then your brain's telling you, you should learn to like this coffee and your body's kind of rebelling against it. And how do you get that kind of alignment? Like, mm -hmm. how do you train that sensitivity to listen? Because you're saying, I think what I think you're saying is that whether we think we have this level of sensitivity or not, our body does. So our mm -hmm. body is reacting to whatever we're putting into it. And then it's like, are we paying attention? Are we trained to hear those signals? Or are we just kind of like bulldozing through? Yes. So for example, if you, if you want to go down this path of trying to read your own body and see how your body receives coffee, and then the sensory part is something on top of that. It's like an added benefit. Um, clean living like eating well and drinking well and not abusing alcohol too much for example you now alcohol is fine for a lot of people uh, but for other people it's not because it's an inflammatory you know eating meats all the time is something that's inflammatory and if you already have a stressed body it's more difficult to read what's happening so that part is extremely important for me mm -hmm. like no meat only vegetables i don't go vegan i don't need to mm -hmm. vegetarian is sufficient for me to be able to do this but i know if i drink alcohol or if i eat meat I cannot do this anymore. Or okay, but I'm shocked that you smoke. Yes, well, that's just because... <laughs> You're a smoker. I'm a freaking addict. And what can I do with that? I'm trying to like, what part of my psyche do I need to repair for me to become less of a lost addict and be able to stop this shit? Because I hate smoking. Mm -hmm. I hate the smell. I don't like the taste. It's just a basic necessity for my head not to crack open. When did you start? Uh, at 15. So I've always had tons of trouble with, uh, with inflammation. Mm -hmm. Um... So, for example, I stopped eating pork and shied away from red meat at like 10 years of age because I basically couldn't walk up a flight of stairs because my, my knees couldn't, couldn't hold me. Mm -hmm. um, and when I took out pork, which has lots of uric acid, for example, that helped so much and I just gained a new life. Mm -hmm. And then I had like a lot of years trying to get my eating into, into the right kind of direction mm -hmm. for my body to work better for me to be able to work more and be happier and it's easier to smile and it's easier to interact and we have more energy when i found when i went uh, vegetarian it took like three days for my body to totally turn around and instead of being super tired after eight hours of working i could go like for like 
12 hours without thinking as long as I can eat as long as I hydrate mm -hmm. there's just tons of energy tons of energy it's even difficult to sleep but you don't need that much sleep because your body's running leaner and cleaner and working better mm -hmm. one of the things that surprised me when I first got here when we were when we were talking is how conscious you were of how dehydrated I was and you were like handing me some water to drink and I knew I was dehydrated but I had mentioned that I mm -hmm. didn't drink um but on just the plane. A, after a plane, <laughs> after a plane if you've been on a plane for more than three hours you will be dehydrated there's no question about right. it and on top of that I and was had like a lot more hours than that I had yeah I had my my six hour flight and also it was like a, a red eye and so I was also afraid of like waking up my seatmates and mm -hmm. getting up to use the bathroom so I purposely was mm -hmm. like and you don't my... drink that much because it's it's a hassle going to the bathroom on the plane and all the food is designed for you not to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. You have to remember that. The food, they designed for you to stay in your seat. Well, I stopped eating plain food a long time ago. Like I do like a fasting. Like I just uh -huh. don't even touch plain food. I can't do that because I'm really sensitive to the, to the sugar levels in my blood. So I get like really sleepy at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And if I eat wrong and eat too much at lunch, then... I have the same problem because mm -hmm. just blood sugar goes all over the place. But this is interesting in terms of, I think what you're saying also is that there are things that we can do, like changing our diet and our lifestyle to become more sensitive. Mm -hmm. And that really vibes with what I'm seeing with fermentation. Like I get a lot of requests to do these like wild extreme fermentations to like really turn up the volume mm -hmm. of these coffees. And that's not the style that I prefer. I'm like, instead of keeping like constantly getting louder, I would rather get more quiet so that we can get more sensitive to taste the nuance I that is there. I prefer symphonies to solo singers. <laughs> you know, I think it's beautiful when you have so many elements working together in unity. Um, when you have like no real peaks, um, you have you know good balance between the concentration of the different different flavors and aromas. That's what really makes things happen for me. Mm -hmm. And I always need high acidity, but I need the acidity to be um, very defined and complex. If it's not complex and if it doesn't remind me of a fruit, it will remind me of an unripe fruit. I mean, eat a green banana and see what happens in your mouth. And just don't swallow too much because it's going to give you it's mm -hmm. going to give you a hard time. But just, you know, eating fruits, going up and down the, the scale of how mature it is, uh, seeing, for example, how astringency is really, really high in a, like a green banana and how the acidity is really simple. Mm -hmm. It's there, it's more like a pH and the two of them kind of become one expression, which is why a lot of people tend to have a difficulty separating astringency from acidity, for example. A lot mm -hmm. of people have huge difficulties with that. So if you're at the really unripe spectrum of flavor, those two are always together and always the same. So for example, a coffee that presents um, notes of corn is not that uncommon to find in some fermentations mm -hmm. and some fairly clean coffees here in Brazil. But to me, that's an expression of the fact that the coffee might be made with cherries that are not ripe enough or that it's difficult to roast them so you don't get to the proper complexity level mm -hmm. by roasting because the coffee doesn't respond. It doesn't, doesn't go to the engine temperature that you need, kind of flat, flat lines a bit before that. Mm -hmm. And that makes... It's an expression that's very, very similar. Is there any other kind of exercise between trying out some of these different fruits at different maturity stages, um, thinking about what else is there in our diet that is potentially interfering or creating a lot of noise, mm -hmm. whether it's alcohol yeah, For example, meat. I cannot eat pepper. I can do black pepper in small quantities, mm -hmm. but like eating live peppers, you know, I love it. I've never found a pepper in my life 
that I can't just eat raw. Mm -hmm. It might make me cry, it might make me sweat, I might be unable to talk for a while because the experience is just intense. so intense, but I still love it. So I have this huge acceptance factor for a few things. I mean, it's not, it's not overboard, it's not too much. It's like being at a rock concert and your ears are fine with the level. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's hurting me, but it's not going to do any damage. Now, that's not real for us. If mm -hmm. it's hurting you, it will do damage. Mm -hmm. um, but with flavor and aroma, I have this, that I can accept really, really high concentrations without them getting the best of me. That makes things easier. But for example, pepper, mm -hmm. if I eat too much pepper, I just can't cup anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like my tongue burns out. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't work mm -hmm. properly anymore. Do you have any other... No, pepper is the worst one and all the other stuff has more to do with uh, how my body becomes because I'm eating stuff I shouldn't be eating mm -hmm. and then I don't have the quietness level inside my body to be able to feel what I'm feeling because I have too much uh, interference going on. Mm -hmm. There are many, many off signals because I ate wrong. I ate meat, for example, so I'm starting to get, you know, my, my fingers won't move as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, every th time I move a joint, it hurts. You know, it's kind of crappy. But you know, all I have to do is eat right, and it doesn't happen. So when my body has all this, all these signals of not being okay, not being happy, it becomes much more difficult to to appreciate coffee and much more difficult to read coffee. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of like this double-edged sword of like it, it can be kind of annoying to live, but all of this feedback is good because it gives you control. It gives you mm -hmm. agency over. And then there are some simple things, <clears throat> like for example. If you have a fruity coffee at home and you're not too happy with fruity coffees, you want to see a bit like a fuller body and you want to see more complexity and more chocolate, what do you do? You eat an egg yolk and it just turns into chocolate. That just totally modifies your mouth. Because a lot of people, like here in Brazil, for example, and all over the world probably, it's so common to serve people a coffee, especially if it's espresso, with bottled sparkling water on the side to clean your tongue mm -hmm. and it's just the worst thing you could possibly do before you drink a coffee it has absolutely no there's no positive effect to doing that what you need to do is you need to prepare your mouth with the same water that was used to brew the coffee then you'll have a totally different and much fuller experience of the coffee if you use uh, bubbly water uh, which has a, like a general mineral profile that's completely different from what you're drinking and generally quite heavy on minerals in, in sparkly water and quite a low pH as well. That just totally screws up your mouth and makes the coffee much less acceptable. Where did that uh, combination come from? I'm not an espresso drinker, so I don't have this experience, but I see that all the time. I you see know, espresso you, you, you let the acidity of the bubbly water clean your palate. But we don't want to clean our palate. We want to prepare it. So it's sort so of a who, who said clean is good? Yeah. <laughs> and, and when's your tongue ever clean? That doesn't... And, and also, you know, we drink sparkly water. It's terrible to drink sparkling water when it's lukewarm. Mm. It's disgusting. And if you're cooling down your tongue, your tongue doesn't have the ability to, to taste properly. Because if you look at sugars... Now, sugars is not that important for coffee because, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> it's there, but it's not detectable. But your tongue works really well, uh, thinking about sugars and acidity between like 38 and 41 degrees is where your tongue is the most sensitive to these elements. That means we should probably be drinking coffee below 50 degrees mm -hmm. C at all times just to be able to appreciate it more. I mean, your tongue is like dead at 70 degrees. It's not picking up anything except for general pH. Now, you're not getting details. You're just getting a panoramic 
Well, I, so that could be another tip for if you have a coffee you don't like, drink it really mm -hmm. hot. And <laughs> so three years ago, I started working and doing some collabs with uh, Wine Sommelier, which has been really cool. I mean, there are not that many sommeliers of water in the world mm. that really understand what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But I have a guy that lives in my city, in Belo Horizonte, who is like the first in South America to have the certification. And he's like one of, I don't know, two or three now after a few years. So working with professionals that are really, really good at what they do and that I have this philosophy where I, when I work with someone, I open up all the doors because I'm going to have, you know, two days or three days with this person and the work I do better have an impact because, mm -hmm. you know, I could go back and make more money, but I'd rather have a better spread mm -hmm. and visiting more people and changing more lives than going back to the same place and always looking at the same things. You know, If you don't learn, maybe it's not for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Find something else to do. Because mm -hmm. you probably don't want it enough. So, I think we can wrap it up. Tell me about what's next for you. What are your next projects? So, I've been working on getting out more into the world because my whole life of coffee has been one of study. Uh, I haven't been very visible in the market for a lot of years, especially in Norway. Just, you know, hiding behind the scenes, being a cafe manager uh, for seven years. Of course, I was 80% of my work time was at the counter, making coffee, making sure all the baristas had what they need. Because, you know, an administrator needs to make sure, or a manager does what? Obviously, you do everything, but your main job is making sure that other people have what they need to get the job done the right way and keep them smiling. Because smiling is important and for me when I was a barista I thought coffee really magical because every cup you make is an opportunity to spread a smile and smiling is contagious so you kind of it, you make the world better just by serving coffee mm -hmm. um, which can be difficult to do in a stressful situation in a coffee shop but if, if, when you make it happen it's really just really beautiful you can just feel the love spreading through the city mm -hmm. um, so I was already always really studying and trying to find out how things were working and how we can roast better and how we can make better drip coffee. So I think it was more like the engineer's approach and reverse engineering things because I started back in the 90s with coffee and in the early 2000s it really skyrocketed uh, the kind of the amount of work we did and the kind of all the stuff we can find out about coffee because nobody really knew much. I mean, if you wanted to read a book about coffee and espresso, you had David Schomer and you had nobody else. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of limited. Today we have completely different resources. It's much more complex. It's much more complete. But we're all still kind of, we don't know what to do still. Because the true complexity of coffee is mind-boggling. And unless we accept that it's really, really complex and work inside of reality, I believe we're not going to see the changes at least I need to see, or I want to see. So how are you trying to make those changes now? Just... Getting out I more, more am selecting my customers in a better way. So I work with the right people. I try to surround myself with people who, who makes my work go forward as well. Uh, just like you did with your presentation yesterday. If you present things in a manner that's too simplified, not complex enough, a lot of people do that because you know you might have a better retention rate of the material. Mm -hmm but will you understand the material better? So respect your customer and respect their intelligence and their ability to absorb much more complex material. 
And if you give them a really, really good system of learning where they can, they can roast and cup and put information into a system, they can handle much more complex data and learn from it and really advance instead of trying to do shortcuts that sometimes work and sometimes don't. Mm -hmm. And you still live, in this, you, you live in this land of uncertainty, which is not good. You need to get rid of the uncertainty and have good techniques and do good research and have results that are expressive. And we're not going to do that if we don't ha don't work well in every category. You have to have a decent level of complexity to work inside of reality. Mm -hmm. So tell me why you have this equipment. Are you making a Portuguese podcast? So I um, I have a tiny little blog that I have kind of launched, but my site's not ready because I'm fighting with a few details uh, where I talk about these things and I try to bring together um, post-harvesting, especially roasting and brewing coffee so all these three are categories that i believe if you align all of them mm -hmm. so for example let's say that you want to make a coffee that's chocolatey but also has a bit of orange because chocolate and orange works really well together you can find ways to potentialize this by uh, post-harvesting for example there are some some i wouldn't do that by bacterial mm -hmm. but if like a coffee that's getting dry enough to become stable and if you have the right environment you can expose it to a bit of water again this happens naturally in some regions when you have like morning fogs and the coffee just goes completely white. And this can really potentialize uh, chocolate and really potentialize citrix, but it's very uncontrollable if you do it naturally. So you can, you can, for example, focus on those two things, like a citric, which is well-defined and rounded, that will pull towards, for example, um, orange, or if it's even more complex, you can go up to mango or pineapple. Um, so you focus the flavor that way in post-harvesting. You can focus the flavor the same way in roasting. So you do like a medium-time roasting, not fast, because fast will be uh, will, will give you simpler acidics. So you need complex acidics and you need complexity um, to gain that chocolatey feeling as well. So you need to roast a bit more, maybe be a tiny bit more aggressive coming into your crack, for example, uh, to round the coffee out and bring it more into that fruity towards chocolatey stage. And you can do the same thing with principles during brewing, adjusting your brewing time and making sure that your extra extraction is uneven. So you, you focus in the points where that, of the extraction that gives these flavors. And when you line those three beautiful things happen and coffee starts kind of to drink like fruit juice because it becomes really expressive and really focused and really mm -hmm. concentrated on those few things that you want. So, you know, coffee by design is what I see as the future. And I think I can open that path for a lot of people because mm -hmm. it's not very difficult, but it's very exacting. If you don't ri roast right, you're not going to see it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to Einstein for being prepared with equipment and sharing his knowledge and passion for coffee. You can find his contact information in the show notes. So what did you guys think? If you're not a coffee producer yourself, did you learn something new about coffee? If you like this type of episode, let me know and I can include more in the future. Hop over to patreon.com slash makingcoffee to support the show and let me know your thoughts. The patrons make it possible for me to carve time out of my week to make these episodes and to have them available for free to everyone else. Patrons now also have access to Discord live discussions. It's like a podcast after the podcast that we make together. And if you join, you don't just get to talk to me. You get to talk to other awesome members like Einstein. 
If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. And for episode updates, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is spelled L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. Thank you.